We're going we're gonna to begin this section of Scripture, chapters 9 through 11 this morning, just looking at Paul's burden in the first five verses and seeking to sort of lay the foundation that we will then plow into the rest of uh, chapters 9 through 11. But uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 this morning and pray as we see this shift to a new section. Romans chapter 9 verse 1, this is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, do what only you can do. Take your word and accomplish your purpose in each one of our hearts. Enable and empower me to preach your word accurately, faithfully, truthfully. To love it as your word and and, uh, trust that your word never, ever, ever returns to you void. But it accomplishes that for which you've sent it. So help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear your word in the power of the Spirit and accomplish all of your purposes through the preaching of your word. Revive us, Lord, and renew in us, Lord, a burden for the lost. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. That's a quote from J. Hudson Taylor. Taylor had a great burden for China that moved him to great self-sacrifice to see souls in the inland of China and the vast area that wasn't being reached to see those souls come to Christ. He also famously said this, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. So at great cost and setting a great example and founding the China Inland Mission to reach the inland areas of China, Taylor would would suffer, would strive, would go back and forth. You know, in his journeys, uh, beginning China Inland Mission and all through the years being involved and traveling back and forth to China, he spent over five years on ship just getting there and back. And saw many people come to Christ. Taylor's story is well worth reading. Uh, Don't expect theological perfection, but definitely an intense burden 
and intense self-sacrifice and work to see the Chinese people come to faith in Jesus. But in our text today, we see an even greater burden, a more intense burden, an even more self-sacrificial burden. One of the best pictures of having the mind of Christ. A verse that has always deeply challenged me and convicted me. And the Apostle Paul's burden for his kinsmen, the Jews. So as we begin Romans 9 through 11, we're going to look at the first five verses and I titled it simply, Burden for Israel. This text should amaze and challenge and Lord willing change you as well. It's not a a typical sermon because as you'll see the main point is a question. It's a question for you to take home and think about and ponder over and be convicted by just as I was this week. And every time I look at this text, does my love for Jesus produce in me an intense burden for the lost? There's your homework. Does my love for Jesus produce in me an intense burden for the lost? Let's look first at Paul's crushing burden. Challenging burden, incredible burden, however you want to say that. But again, I've said we're, we're beginning a new section, and we'll look at this really quick. But this section between Romans, beginning of 9-1 and the end of chapter 11, is a new section. It is framed by um, sections that end with amen. The first one is Paul's lament over his Jewish brethren, and then it ends in a closing doxology where he just erupts in praise over the wisdom of God in his work of salvation. And we see a sudden shift from the celebration we've been enjoying in the last part of Romans 8 to this lament in chapter 9. And the thesis statement, we won't get to it till next week, but the thesis statement for chapters 9 through 11 is in verse 6a, and it's the word of God has not failed. That's the thesis statement for chapters 9 through 11. The Word of God has not failed. And here's our big question. Why do most Jews reject their Messiah? Why don't all the Jews believe? Jesus is their Messiah. Why do most of them reject Him? And we will see that worked out. But look at look look now. Let's look back at the text at, at Paul's amazing, crushing burden. And look how he emphasizes this. He doesn't just say, "Look, I have a burden for the Jews, and I want to reach them with the gospel." That, that's true, but that that would that wouldn't that wouldn't even be skipping a rock across the surface of his burden. If you're raised in the country, you learn how to skip rocks across the water. Kind of hard to do in the ocean with the waves, but. But look back in verse 1 and watch how he emphasizes this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. See, see how he's kind of, you, you just feel something being set on the T here. It's like, wow, this is serious. If he's going to this length to get us to really, really pay attention and believe what he's saying, this is, this is really important. He didn't just say I'm speaking the truth. He said I'm not lying. Flip side of it. My conscience in the whole, not just his conscience though, in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. What are you telling us, Paul? Look at verse 2. That I have a little bit of sorrow and occasional anguish in my heart. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I have this overwhelming burden that I carry with me that never leaves me. Notice unceasing. Great and unceasing. I want you to pay attention. I'm telling you the truth. I'm about to sort of lay out the details of what's going on as I have this burden. But I, I walk with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He has a deep and abiding concern, as we'll see, for his Jewish brethren. I mean, you see it again. You see this theme running through. You see it again in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire, continual, and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. My continual desire, my prayer, is that they may be saved. I cannot forget them. I have this great sorrow over them and this unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart over them because I see them and I see their lost condition and their need of Christ. Nobody believed more fully in the sovereignty of God as you'll see as we work through this section. And yet it didn't wash out the responsibility. And it didn't wash out the burden. When we, when we learn about God's sovereignty and we just become casual about others' salvation, we are sinning with the sovereignty of God. We, yes, should be comforted by His sovereignty, but we should also be challenged by it. Because He's told us to go make disciples and He's promised to be with us in it. And Paul is saying, I've got this abiding desire, this abiding prayer. Are we praying for the lost? I have great sorrow over them and unceasing anguish over them. And then verse 3, this is the one that I don't know if we'll reach the heights of ever in this life. Just take pause and we'll go slow. Look what he says here. Connecting it with four. To his sorrow, to his burden. I could wish that I myself, emphasizing, were always blessed and comfortable and happy and never worried about anything. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And that way he starts that out 
is kind of saying something, if this would save them, I would be willing to do this. To be anathema to God. To be cut off from Christ. I would be willing to go to hell forever if it would mean the salvation of my brethren. That's how deep the burden is and the commitment. That is astonishing. And if you say, I don't know if I could ever say that, I understand. I understand that. But wow should be our response. You mean you would be willing to be accursed, anathema, take the wrath of God on yourself, do you, Obviously, it's not anything we don't deserve to save your brethren. Have you ever read a more Christ-like mindset than that? You don't brush this away. He really felt this way. He's already sort of gone to great extent to convince us that he feels this way. That the Holy Spirit bears witness he's telling the truth. He's not lying. He's speaking the truth. This great sorrow and unceasing anguish. His love for and care for the Jewish people means he would be willing to be cursed by God if it would save them. He would be willing to give up his salvation, if it would mean their salvation. Now listen, he knows he's not the Savior. He knows he can't do that. But what he's trying to get across is this depth of commitment and burden that he has for his brothers and sisters, the Jews. He is a Jew. He was a Jew, a Pharisee, committed to to God, trying to stamp out the church because of that commitment. God had mercy on him and brought him to faith in Christ. The lights were turned on and the Messiah he was trying to stamp out, he realized, oh my, that's the real Messiah. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. And then he spent, starts spending his time trying to convince Jew first and then Gentile of the truth of the gospel. Jew of Jews. Quick side point. Just a quick one. Think about Paul's pedigree. Jew. Pharisee. So well trained in the Jewish theology and in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant, so ready to be the apostle to the Jews. If we were picking an apostle to the Jews, we would have picked him, wouldn't we? And yet God made him an apostle to the Gentiles. I've made this point already, but just another opportunity to make it. God doesn't do things the way we would do them. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't do things like us. God is confusing sometimes. And when you are saying, I don't get it, I don't understand, you're in a good place. 
You aren't in the wrong place. He gets it. He understands. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing it in a way that he gets the most glory. And here's the part we have to embrace. Therefore, it is most for our good. You know, the difference is not made by the messenger. This will help you. The difference is made by the message and the Spirit applying that message. The power of God for the salvation of Jew and Gentile is not the person of the messenger. It is the message. It is the gospel. So you don't have to have the answers to 750,000 questions before you witness. You've got the one answer that matters, and that's Christ who lived and who died and who was raised from the grave and that God commands us on the basis of Christ to repent and trust in Jesus. Great burden Paul has for the Jewish people. Now think about this. You see the depth of this burden. He's getting into the mindset of Christ, isn't he? Because this is what, exactly what Christ did for us. Not only was he willing to be accursed, he was accursed. Not only did, was salvation planned in eternity past and the Father sends the Son and the Spirit to, to apply the work of the Son, sent Jesus to live the Son, God-man, live under His own law. Jesus came as God and man, incarnation. We've celebrated that over Christmas. He came and was born under His own law and He fulfilled that law in thought, word, and deed to provide a righteousness for His people. And then He went to the cross and was accursed. In the way we think about it, He went to hell forever for us. Now the mystery of the gospel being God and man, He could do that in a matter of hours on the cross and drink that cup dry. But that doesn't diminish the agony. In fact, it was intensified. A perfect atonement. The wrath of God perfectly satisfied. The soul that sins shall die. Christ took our burden upon Himself. Took our curse upon Himself. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried and He was raised the third day. Are you trusting in Jesus? Because think about it. God the Son was willing to do this for His people. He took our curse. There's no curse left for us. That's why Paul could say in the beginning of chapter 8, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took all the condemnation. For God so loved the world, and really for God loved the world in this way that He sent His only begotten Son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised, to reign, to return. He sent His Son that whosoever believes into Him, whosoever trusts in Him, shall not be accursed, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Are you trusting in Him this morning? Maybe we can begin then to relate to this burden Paul has for his brethren. Look at Israel, number two, point number two. Israel's privileged need. Israel was privileged but lost for the most part. For the most part, the Jewish people, though greatly and highly privileged, chose to remain in those shadow privileges 
rather than come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had great religious privilege. They were a chosen nation. That didn't mean every person was converted. We know there was a remnant. I'm not going to talk about this this morning. But Paul speaks of them as Israelites and not Jews in this verse on purpose. He's indicating that special religious position of the Jewish people. That special position that they held. That special privilege. That special blessing. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Israel was not just chosen, created by God. Through Abraham, Isaac. You move on down the line. But he lists some of their privilege. And this is not here that we might, you know, infinitely unpack this. But we're, we're making a point here. And he gives this list of privileges. And as I looked at this, and I, I believe, I believe um, Shriner's right, that it's best to just take these and look at them in three couplets. Right? So three pairs. Just put them together that way. And it, it becomes pretty organized when we, when we do it that way. Because what we have here in the list is what they had to them belong, the adoption. Notice the definite articles here. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. So if you take that, those six and put them into couplets, you can see it this way. The first one, adoption and giving of the law. Think of the exodus. Think of the exodus when God redeems Israel out of Egypt. And, and adopts them as his son, a, a people, Israel as God's son, typical son, pointing us forward to Christ. But the adoption and the giving of the law, he, he, he delivers them from Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai, and gives them his law, all in that one movement. They were redeemed, they were adopted nationally, so they had great religious privilege, and this has great significance. They were instructed by, the, by God. And this covenant that He made with them, that He ratified with Israel at Sinai, was a national covenant. It did not guarantee the salvation of every covenant member. There was covenant responsibility on those people. But adoption and giving of the law, think of, that, think of the exodus. And so we put those two together. Look at the next two. The glory and the worship. So think about tabernacle, temple. Right? The Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of, uh, of fire at night and cloud by day. What was that, that glory? What was that communicating to them? But that God was present with them. His glory was manifest to them, indicating His presence there in the temple. And that their worship was regulated by His Word, so they had access to Him. So you have glory and worship. You have presence of God and access through the worship that He defined in His Word. So you got Exodus with the adoption and giving of the law. You've got tabernacle, temple. So you have presence and access to God. God in the midst of His people in that way. And through the, the, the priesthood and through the sacrifices and through everything that God set up, the people were guaranteed and comforted by His presence and they had access to Him to learn from Him. All of that foreshadowed the Son of God 
the Logos, the Word, being God Himself, taking on human flesh and tabernacling among us. God with us in the Son, the true and greater tabernacle, the true and greater temple, and in Him we are the temple. Just, we're not looking for another reboot back to old covenant worship, okay? I'm not saying the Jews won't try to do that. But Christ is the temple, and we are the temple in Him now, and that's all through the New Testament. We have His presence. We have His access. He's in our hearts through this salvation. So glory and worship, think tabernacle and temple. And then covenants and the promises. These two words really interpret one another, don't they? Think of, think of the covenants in terms of the promises contained in them. There's always promises contained in these covenants. In fact, to such an extent that in Ephesians 2.12, it calls them the covenants of promise. God's promises the Israelites had received. God's promises of what He was doing and was going to do through His Son. God had chosen Israel. He had given them His law. He had promised them future salvation through the Messiah to come. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But you see how all this kind of is just showing what privilege and benefit the Israelites had. And he says in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs or the fathers. The physical, they're the physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Murray would add to the list there, which is true. Right? All of the, they are the, tracking those genealogies. Why did they do that? To show that they were descendants of Abraham. Seed. Physical of Abraham. So theirs was the father's. So they, they have this rich heritage that is theirs. And then if that's not enough, look at what else he says. And from their race, Jewish people, the Israelites, from Adam, Abraham on down, from their race, the Messiah has come which was the purpose of all of that, to prepare for and bring about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would save His people from their sins. The Messiah that was pictured in the offices of prophet, priest, and king. It was foreshadowed and proclaimed through the sacrifices and the Day of Atonement and the lambs being slaughtered. He's the fulfillment of all of that. He is the Christ. And notice what it says there. The Christ. We, we kind of tend to think of Christ as Jesus' last name, don't we? In America, like, you know, Cindy Duncan. Jesus Christ. But that's not what that means. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. It's telling us who He is. And Paul says here, the Messiah, the Christ. He does that on purpose. Greek for Messiah in Hebrew. He says, through them came. Notice, notice that. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jewish, my brothers, he would say, 
The Christ is here. The Messiah is here. He came from our race and He's here. And He's not just a man. Look at the last part of that verse. So you have the human nature. According to the flesh, He's the Christ, born of a woman. He's he's truly human, but He's more than that. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Not going into the technical details why that's the right translation. Just that is from my research and looking into it, that, that is the right translation. So we have the two natures here of Christ in one person. Man, God, the God-man. Lord at His birth, we sing. God over all. The, the, the mind-blowing nature of the incarnation. So look what look at your rich blessings and privilege, my brothers. Look, my Jewish brothers, you, I know you want to stay here. You, you want to live with the picture instead of the reality. That's kind of weird, right? If you, if you have a picture of your wife and you don't spend any time with her, you just walk around with the picture all the time. We have counselors for that. But look what he's doing in piling up these these privileges and these blessings to get them to see that their Messiah has come. And here, look, and they have rejected him. And that's what causes Paul's intense burden and grief such that he is willing to be accursed if it would save them. It won't. He knows. He's told us already in this book, the power of God is the gospel. No human being could ever atone. Human alone could ever atone. It had to be Jesus. It had to be the God-man to reconcile us to God. But this is what's causing Paul the grief. This is what's causing him to say, if it would work this way, I would be, be willing to be accursed if they could be saved. So why don't all the Jews believe in Jesus as their Messiah? How did the Gentiles get in on God's grace? Has God given up on the Jewish people? This is just a few of the questions we're going to answer as we see Paul work out his burden through the truth that is presented in chapters 9 through 11. So read ahead, pray ahead, buckle up, right? But there's really rich, good, necessary truth in these chapters that we will see as Paul lays out. He transitions from this burden to the thesis statement we'll see next time. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. In other words, the Word of God. Even though this is true, even though most of the Jews have rejected their Messiah, the Word of God hasn't failed. And you basically he's going to say, and let me show you why. But that's far as we're going to go today. But before we, before we end, I just want to make a couple of points of application. And my first point of application is this. Beware of being religious but lost. Because listen, we have many people sitting in churches this morning who are counting on their religious privilege. 
counting on their going all the time, giving all the time, reading all the time, participating. All, all those are good things, but those are not what saves you. God's not going to keep a tally on how many times you went to church to see if you're one of His. It's whether or not you're in Christ, whether or not you've trusted this Messiah. There are people all over this country sitting in churches, and I'm not talking about primarily the liberal churches. It's obvious that if you're not preaching the gospel, you're not making disciples. But even in conservative churches, there's been a plague in America for a long time. And there are many names for it, one of which is easy believism. So I preach a shallow gospel to you on a Sunday morning. And I make you sing 46 verses of just as I am so that somebody will come down and validate my message by praying the sinner's prayer. In which I will tell you, if you will just admit that you're a sinner and pray this prayer with me, you will be converted. That's a lie. You won't find one sermon in the Word that says it like that. Shallow conversions are not disciples made. And listen, you've seen a good bit of it already and you're going to see more. You're going to see more people claiming they've dis deconstructed out of Christianity. And not everyone uses deconstruction word the same way. But you're going to see, let me just make it easy for you. You're going to see a lot more apostasy coming. Because the word hasn't been taught and preached in a lot of churches. The gospel hasn't been really taught and preached in a lot of churches. There's been no call to repentance. What did Jesus say would be preached to the ends of the earth? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can pray the sinner's prayer and be as lost as a ball in high weeds. Southernism. Some of you are looking. People ask me all the time, why don't you have altar calls? Well, number one, we don't have an altar. Jesus has dealt with that. Finney started that. That's not a sign of a true church. But it, it is a sign of a true church for you to be called to repentance and faith in Jesus. To be pointed towards your need for a new heart. To be renewed so that you hate sin and are turning from it. To call you to turn toward God. And we've seen that in Acts. And place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To put before you what God does when He saves somebody. Is he gives them a new heart. There's a change within us in our moral and spiritual attitude. There's a turning towards God and a reception of Jesus as our Savior and Lord in such that we begin to follow Him in the power of the Spirit. Yes, it's a free gift. God grants what He commands. He grants repentance and faith to those that He's saving. But He does not save without repentance. And Jesus, the apostles, or anybody else in, in the early church ever led anybody through such thing as a sinner's prayer. Now I know if you've been raised in the church, you're probably looking at me like, you sound crazy. Because that's all I've ever heard and seen done. And I've seen a lot of people walk the aisles. Yeah, and you've seen them go back, right back to, a lot of them go right back to the mess they were in before they did that. Sometimes it takes a while. Now, am I saying nobody's converted under that? I'm not saying that at all. We were converted under that. 
What does God say in Acts 17? That He has sacrificed His Son the end of Acts 17. And on the basis of Him sacrifices His Son, He commands all people everywhere to pray the sinner's prayer. What does He say? He commands all people everywhere to repent. Same language, Old Covenant. Have a new heart, circumcised heart. Circumcise your heart. You can't do that, I know. But God does that through the preaching of the gospel. Renews us and enables us to hate sin and to turn from it and to grow in turning from it. We're not perfected when we're converted, but we start to be sanctified at that point. But we do begin to follow Jesus and we do begin to be grieved over our sin. We do begin to hate our sin. We do seek to turn from it out of love for Jesus and trust Him in it that He knows the best way to go. Many in churches today have a great... I don't have that... I've not made it to the Paul place yet where I'm willing to go to hell. But I've been in a lot... In my context is Southern Baptist churches. I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. There are a lot of people. I mean, there are people in this church probably. But there are a lot of people in churches like that who if something doesn't change in their heart and life, they are going to hear from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because your life is characterized by lawlessness. Go read Matthew chapter 7. You'll see it. Many people sit in worship counting on their privileges, on their works, on their family ties, on that prayer they prayed umpteen years ago that made no difference in their life. Beware of being religious but lost. Beware of claiming to be a disciple but not loving Jesus. Beware. Because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? Beware if you don't hate sin. Beware if you don't love the Word. Beware if you don't want to follow Christ and it grieves you, what you when you don't. Beware. Look to Christ. Because we as Gentiles have been included. It's not salvation just for the Jews. But beware. And then last. Second. got to move on. We need to move toward Lord's Supper. Oh. Pray for a renewed burden for the lost. If you're not concerned about your neighbor. Whether or not they know Christ. That's a problem. I know you're concerned about your children. Or, or your spouse. Or maybe. Hopefully. But we should be really concerned about people that don't know Jesus. And our Reformed theology should fuel that burden, not put it out. Pray for a renewed burden for the lost. Take that main point I gave you and be serious about it. Look to Christ. Now, we're not, we're not seeking to turn to the path of works, right? We're looking to Christ who's died for us and lived for us. And so we, we rested in His salvation. And we want others to be able to rest in that as well. Because outside of Christ, guess what? John 3.16. Perish. Accursed. Condemnation. Lost. Hell. If you want to put it that way. But on the, through the gospel, there's eternal life. See, Paul being accursed would not save us, but Jesus was willing to be accursed in order to save us. Jesus took our eternal hell. So we should love Him 
as the God-man, our Savior, which we see him in this text. So from the gospel and his grace and the joy that his grace brings, let's lay our lives down for him in the gospel. This is what revival looks like. When God gets hold of his church, conviction, yeah, there'll be a heightened conviction of sin. But there'll be a turning and a joy and a rededication to Christ and a burden such that we're like little flames of fire going out of here with the gospel. See, it's not just the evangelists that are supposed to have a burden. Christ didn't say, all authority has been given to me, so just the evangelists go and make disciples. No, they, they, there are certain people that are gifted, but they're gifted and they help all of us then be better witnesses to the gospel. So let's lay our lives down for Christ. Let's do what He calls us to do. Let's pray and seek, pray and seek for a burden because this burden is going to fuel us, not into discouragement, but into courage so that we'll go and we'll speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that we will care and therefore we will witness that we will have a gospel burden like Taylor, like Paul, like Jesus. Do you have a renewed burden for the lost? That's one thing I remember about my conversion distinctly. It frustrated the fire out of me that I couldn't witness to everybody I saw. It burdened me. Now, it wasn't a mature burden, right? It was a, it was a, a shallow, immature burden that didn't have good theology. But it was a burden there. And the problem that happens in the church sometimes is we mature out of our burden. We just make it okay not to have one. Make it okay not to be impassioned for the lost. And that's not maturity. The, 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 the more mature I am really in Christ, the heightened that burden is going to be. And it's going to be trained by all the truth that He's given us, right? So that we're not hoping in ourselves or our own technique. We know, we know we're just instruments in the hand of of the one who is saving. But with maturity, life being Christ, to die is gain, to live is Christ. Life being Christ is a life with a burden for the lost and willing to be an instrument of God that He works through to bring others to faith. See, the church has to be a witness. And I have to be a witness. And I preach the gospel to you, right? So you should get it when you come here. But then you should take it with you. It's like a baton I'm handing you as I preach it. Either for you to come to faith or for you to take that gospel baton. And go weekly talk about it. Go talk about it in an imperfect way because you know that's what all of us are going to do. Go out and not be answered to ever answer everybody's questions because you're not called to do that. But let this verse 3 search us. Lord, do I have that kind of burden? Am I, Lord Jesus, am I really fixed on you and focused on following you? Am I willing to be an instrument in your hands? Or do I just want to be like the Dead Sea and just take all this grace and damn it up in me and never talk about it with anybody else? No, be a flowing river. Rivers of living water flow from the hearts of those who know Jesus, he said. So I want to change Taylor's quote as I end. I'm going to edit it a little bit. 
We know Christ has called us to make disciples of all nations. We see Paul in his part in his increased and heightened burden for his Jewish brethren, but he was a witness to Jew and Gentile, and he became an apostle to the Gentiles. Christ has called us to win the world, to make disciples of all nations. That's why we're still here. So I'm changing Taylor's quote just a little bit into this. The world is not to be won by Christ, for Christ, by quiet, ease-loving men and women. Now, we can stop and confess to how much that describes us. Quiet and ease-loving. The world is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus and souls first. Even life itself must be second, secondary. The world will be won by those who by spirit working in them have a great burden for the lost. So take this home with you, this main point, and pray this week and go before the Lord. Does my love for Jesus produce in me an intense burden for the lost? To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is convicting. And we own that. Our flesh does want to be at ease and just coast into the kingdom. Coast into the new heavens and new earth. But Lord, we know by your great commission, we know by the example of Paul and the rest of the apostles and your church down through the ages that you have called us to follow you. You call us to repentance and faith. You call us to love you and to follow you and to be fishers of men and women and boys and girls. And that all ages in this building, in your church, all ages can be a witness for you. Lord, we have children in this church who pass out more tracts and talk to more people about Jesus than any of the rest of us. How did we get so at ease? How is it that we can so little relate to the Apostle Paul who was willing to be accursed for his brethren? As we started with, search us and try us, Lord. Know our thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lead us in the way that follows you. Lead us in the way of self-sacrifice, a burden, and of letting our light shine, which is you shining in and through us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to be accursed for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for you who was raised from the grave. Convert those who don't know you, Lord. We, we commit them into your will. Con sanctify the rest of us so that we truly live in line with what we say every Sunday, that for us to live is Christ. 
and to die as gain. So we pray for it and trust for it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.